Sitting down today with us in the Do You Convert podcast studios is Joel Fleischman. He is the president of Drexel Building Supply and one of my favorite people from Twitter. Joel, hey. let's, just, let's just dig into how, how we got connected. I mean, it's 2022. This shouldn't be an interesting story to anyone, but I think people still are surprised anytime that, that social networks, and in particular Twitter, provide value other than just increasing heart rate and sending people to medical facilities faster due yeah. to stress and anxiety. Yeah. And, and in the building industry, it's uh, amazing. You can tweet anything about building out, it seems like, and you might get one like or one response. It's still a pretty quiet community over there on Twitter. So if you aren't on it, join our building community and let's try to link together because there is some value there if you mine through the uh, madness. A hundred percent. That's that's actually why I got involved in Twitter. It was, it was a quieter place to go talk. I, I feel I still feel like I can be a little bit more open with the ideas or thoughts that I have or, or have conversations that are, are not mainstream. Whereas if I'm on LinkedIn or, or Facebook, the whole world I feel like is, is watching. So th- those of us who are, who are more serious, I think are, are finding that to be the case over there. So I, I threw out at the end of last year, kind of a, Hey, I'd, I'd like to make a donation to charity and talk to some interesting people for the podcast. And Joel was not someone I was expecting to hear from, but he, he tweeted back and said, yeah, let's talk. I, I run a, a small little business here in Wisconsin, and uh, I don't remember the exact number, but he's like, I just, I just bought a whole bunch of, of robots slash drones, and we've reinvented the business, grown it from uh, X amount of revenue to some exponentially larger number of revenue very quickly. And my first reaction was building supply company. Hmm. So Let's just educate the audience, Joel, of building supply company sounds like you take widgets and deliver them on the job site for builders to use. But give us just the 10,000 square foot view or 10,000 foot view of of what Drexel does when you partner with builders. And then we'll kind of dig into some other good conversation. Yeah, you're not horribly wrong. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, you're not horribly wrong, right? We, We typically take things off a truck and we put it onto another truck. (laughs) <laughs> uh, at the root of our business. And we make it incredibly hard, but we do, uh, quote unquote, try to add value to the builders on a builder's, builder relationship level, right? So we are directly, on a few of my recent podcasts, we actually were talking about interior doors, which we are sourcing from Malaysia. Uh, we had a gentleman on from British Columbia. Wow. Uh, and we are getting most of our lumber from that Saskatchewan area. So we are an international company, even though we only have nine locations and do about $300 million a year with about 650 people. Yet we're very international to the builders we do provide for here in Wisconsin. So that's kind of who we are. We do a variety of services from flooring to residential designs. We actually design homes here in Wisconsin for builders. We do siding and shingles. Uh, We do the lumberyard business. We do uh, millwork and doors. So we're a bunch of little, we like to think we're a bunch of little companies into one. You know, the more a builder in a selfish way, the more a builder can buy from us, uh, the ease less, the less footprints that come across to his house and the less invoices he gets, the better connected he is, the less phone calls the project manager has to make when we're all integrated. So that's a little bit about us, but it's not about the future where we're going, but that's a little bit about us currently. And it's not just products. Again, it is turnkey services. So when you're talking about design, you're talking about in some cases, flooring installation then as well. It's not, it's not providing the flooring, but absolutely. Yep. We do the installation of that. And then within the last, uh, and the reason I wanted to come on the podcast within the last five years, we as a company and myself as a president have become absolutely obsessed with offsite construction. So we bought two trust manufacturers, uh, trust systems and blinker construction. 
and purchased those and got into the off-site business. So now we are into what you might want to call turnkey framing or what we call off-site construction. Yeah. Did I, I say a code word? No, I, I just think off-site is definitely a place that we need to go. We'll talk about why that's that's um, both the, the promise of the future and why it's maybe more difficult than people not from industry understand. But I just want to highlight again what you know, what you're talking about is innovation and moving forward. But I think, again, a whole bunch of my audience is still not aware that there are organizations like yours that are just continuing to take the same customer base and saying, what else can I do to help them? How it's going to make them their, their, their job easier? And I just moved into a, a high-end, uh, air quotes for everyone, because who knows what that means, a high-end custom home here in central Ohio, built by a builder with a great reputation. And yet I'm pretty sure at least a third of the labor if and probably half of the materials came from a single supplier that would be a comparable to Drexel, uh, albeit smaller. But even there, they're not that small. They, they sound like a local company. They're actually owned by the second largest lumber group in the country, who's so large that they could you know, send a couple hundred people to the Bahamas for a one-week trip just to say thanks. So- it's just interesting how this part of the business that is not as sexy and people don't pay as much attention to unless you're in that part of the new home new home world. And so what you're saying now is, okay, this company and the leadership team here, we want to take things forward. And you believe, tell me why you think offsite is, is where things are headed. I think if we go, what's what was wrong with our industry or, or, or locally here in Wisconsin, but what's wrong with our industry, then we can say why we want to go forward, right? Because why would you fix something that's not broke? Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the industry. And really, if you think about it, right, we're going to sell you, Kevin, as a client. You're going to client with the builder in Ohio. We would sell you the materials. First thing we would do is have a rough estimate of what the materials the framer is going to use. We're going to sell that to the builder at a non-guaranteed amount. Mm-hmm. So if that material is stolen, damaged, if the material is for waste, about 10 to 15% of everything we ship to you is immediately going to go back into a dumpster that your builder has to purchase. God made the tree. We milled it. We delivered it. Within two weeks, it'll be in the dumpster. Now, at least in Wisconsin and Ohio, we have things called weather, right? So we deliver material on site. And then we say, basically, if you think about it, what they would say in Europe, which is mostly offsite construction, they would say, oh, you bought a car? Cool. They dropped the pieces off at your garage. How's the assembly coming? Yeah. Right, what, are we, what are we actually doing? Right. And we are, have a shortage of labor. So now if you take it even a little further than that conversation, what has always drove me is the value added design services of structural engineers. There's so many things that we can mimic in a factory controlled settling. And I think in a very sexy way, what we call virtual builders, right? Our virtual builders, our estimators and our designers are literally using software that appears to be Minecraft for adults. <laughs> literally, they, they've literally told me, Joel, you pay me to play video games all day. This is the coolest job I've ever had, right? <laughs> yeah, sign me can, up for that. Yeah, but they can design a header on one window that's a two by four, the window behind you perhaps. That, that might be a two by four because it's not structural for a header. The next window needs to have two two by 12s. It's almost impossible to teach a framer on site. And even if you teach a framer, framers are very smart people. They won't have time. The cost savings, they can't grab that lumber and then switch it out. Right. There's a tall walls, uh, structural walls that have to get built. Might take a day or two to assemble on site if they have the correct pieces on site and measure them and cut them precisely. If they don't, they have to wait for the lumberyard to make an extra trip. Guess who's paying for that? Anyway, speed things yeah. up. We can do yeah. that all in a controlled setting. 
our sawdust gets sold to Bemis here in Wisconsin, and they make toilet seats out of it. We've eliminated the waste. We've now taken the value engineering side of it. And then let's talk about speed in our country. Typical house takes a quite a long time to frame, two, three, four weeks, again, depending on how large a complexity. We can speed those houses up in half. People love it. You're under control setting much quicker, much faster, much cleaner, much neater job sites. And everybody loves to see progress of that house. We have very stressed out project managers all over the country. I'm sure you're aware of that, Kevin. Oh, we yeah. don't want to see the, And that normally during framing is their most stressed out period, if you ask them. Maybe that and the end. We take them, we eliminate them. They don't have to be on site. We have field supervisors, crews that are trained to do this. It's all controlled, like you said, vertically integrated a little before uh, from our design process all the way through the, the virtual design process to virtually build it all the way to our field supervisors. And then full circle, guess what? Our framers are very, very frustrated framers in the country that no one listens to now can talk directly to that person that designed a house and our factories, and we can make immediate permanent changes to make their job easier, boom, thus solving the shortage of labor perceived in the industry. Much more fun job, too, to build a home quick with panels than building it with sticks. Yeah, now, Whew, okay. Sorry, me, I, get all, I get all lathered up, I'm sorry. I think, it again, it sounds so easy, though. And we were talking pre-show quickly that, you know, I've worked with NVR and Miranda Homes, uh, two companies that both utilize panelization to different degrees. And yet people talk about it like it's something new. It's, it's not new. It's been around uh, since 60s, 70s. Why hasn't this taken off? What are the things that you're not saying that make this actually hard? That's and great. Then, I mean, then, I then I'll throw you back some of the more specific objections I've heard. But, but why is this hard? Absolutely. No, I mean, the things that the perceptions of it is, hey, this can't be custom. It's modular, right? I think even the words I always say are powerful. It is not modular. We do do custom built. Um, now think of it this way. It takes massive capital investment. It takes vertical integration. So you have very large suppliers that are making good money, uh, are two big guys in the country that are not that obsessed about that. They're obsessed about, as they should be, they're financially based companies making money. And yeah. then you have a lot of regional players and they're not willing to commit that 10, 20 million when things are reasonably working. So mm -hmm. who's going to make that capital commitment, redo their design services, redo the services they offer, take that leap of faith with, with the unknowns. Um, and then there's the perceived, hey, what if these panels don't fit right? What if they're shoved in the mud? How does this work in real life? And yeah, it has to go well or it goes ugly real fast. I remember, uh, I think it was the Prada Homes here in Columbus, Ohio in 2010. I came down and, and one of the homes was built by a modular offsite construction company. And Generally speaking, I don't think most of the people in the public were aware walking through the home that was different. But then you'd get to this one portion of the house where two larger sections have been put together and only half of a fire smoke detector was visible and the other half was was buried or I don't, they just couldn't they couldn't get it. It was just and it stuck out like a sore thumb as what what's going on here? So our industry generally struggles with customer satisfaction and and final delivered quality. Because what we're doing is so complicated, going back to your example of the car being built in your driveway, when things go kind of wrong or somewhat wrong, they can go really wrong or wipe out the entire profit on a home if you're not careful. So, and I think that's one, one mis, maybe misconception, maybe truth of, of modular or offsite, which is, I agree with you, a better, a better term. Let's just agree as a group to just cut out the word modular 
and panelization? Because I, I think I think modular of trailer courts, I think panelization of walls assembled in a factory. Walls are not price. <laughs> you don't save a lot of time or price or money with pre-built walls. And if you did, we found all that free. savings back in the 70s. And, it, and it, like, yeah, it hasn't yeah. really iterated forward to where no, we I needed mean, to keep going. It, to. It's got to be fully integrated with stairs, w- windows in the walls, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, thank you. But go go forward. I'm sorry. When things go wrong, then how do they get addressed by your team now? If, if something, I don't know if that's the right question really to ask. It's what percentage of the time do you find it going very, very well? Uh, or what's what's kind of the hiccup rate or the error rate of the number of jobs being done and, and how often you say to yourself, I'm not sure if that was easier this go around. And that's the big problem, right? When it's not easier going around, they're like, why do I do this? Because <laughs> I'm right back to where I was. So I, yeah, I just came from a job, totally transparent. I just came from a job that site this morning. Uh, commercial crew hadn't done a residential job yet. And, you know, really commercial crews are looking, and I, I love you guys if you're listening, but, um, you know, a lot of times they're, they're just looking to pass inspection. Residentially, you need to have a certain look for the mm-hmm. for the, the the baseboard, the moldings, the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, drywall to hit correctly, and so it's beyond just inspection. Um, and I, yeah, I left there, and I think the the key is the uh, the uh, field supervisors that we have on site, the integrated process, the speed and efficiency of having people that can respond to punch list, and understanding there's going to be a punch list. Rough framing is still what rough. This is not finished carpentry. This is not perfection. Even though it's built in a factory, it is still wood, right. uh, still moving parts. It is still not a perfect build. So finding that fine line, but then having people that are just responsive and effective and controlling those punch lists, uh, and then having steps in place. I hate double checkers. I think it just sucks profit out of any company, but having those steps in place that, hey, common sense reigns. Uh, what we found in the last two years doing this for anybody listening and thinking of doing this, it is all currently how you build a home with sticks. The work, the energy, the output is all when we actually ship it. We ship the product and we wait for the framer to call and complain or ask for more or give us feedback. It's almost reactive. This entire product is, is proactive. I need to meet with your framer prior to the site. I need mm. to look at the design prior to it being designed. I need to fill out a really good scope of work. And that might be one of the biggest hangups in the industry. We are now turning into project management right. and a subcontractor versus just sending out a bunch of commodity lumber and let me know if you need more. Uh, that's that's the difference. And I do think that's a fear factor is how do you change a company from, a, again, a straight shipping company, a logistic company with commodities versus a project management company. And project managers, I think anybody, and you do you do this for a living, Kevin, you would tell any of them, I think it's all in the preparation and the process. And and that avoids the, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Yeah. And when you talk about overwhelmed framers, but overwhelmed project managers in today's world, if they don't have a partner like you, where they, they can dependably reach out and get the support they need. But if it's, you know, a, a plumbing company with three employees who's waiting on materials, they're going to have a different type of leverage or, or lack of leverage than, than, than a company like you will have to support them. So, I mean, we, we, anything we need to make their, their lives better uh, as marketers listening, one of the concerns about offsite or, or maybe again, misperceptions is, well, this will be fine. If I'm going to build the same uh, townhome unit 500 times in a row, then, then by the 10th of these, we'll figure out all the kinks and we'll be off to the races and we'll make up anything that slowed us out at the beginning. We'll just be able to 
to make up both in profit and time on the back end. Does offsite mean a lack of personalization? Because the concern would be as prices keep going up and interest rates rise, that yes, we have we have two problems going on at the same time. We have a lack of affordable housing, which is almost unfortunately politically driven and land cost driven. Uh, land developers and politicians are kind of the two biggest uh, culprits there. And then on the other side, we have, as, as prices go up, the consumer at some point says, I'm paying what for this? Okay, I can't afford it, but I, I want to be able to make some adjustment to make it what I want. Yeah. No, I mean, if you think of it this way, the, uh, it's a great way to think about it. The commercial industry, at least a decade ago, has, at, least in, at least in the Midwest, has went to 100% panelization, offsite construction. On five-story buildings, non-repeatable assisted living centers. So we can do that, but we can't do a 3,500 square foot custom farmhouse uh, contemporary build out. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's kind of comical when you think about it that way, right? Like if we can, if we can do an 80,000 square foot custom uh, project, uh, why couldn't we do a 3,500 square foot house? It is just the accuracy of that. It is the builder's full commitment though. That's the difference. So this is not, hey, I can't find labor for this one job. Right. Let's try offsite construction. Mm-hmm. Again, this isn't panelization. I'm not your framing firm. I'm not the answer to a framing problem. It's a philosophy in your business. Because yes, all your customers are going to do pre, are going to do the selections the second you get a contract. They're not going to make changes to that. They're not going to walk through on a Tuesday night and just talk about it. Joel, Most you're actually the reason the air horn went off is because that's the solution for custom anyway. Again. I love the builder that that built my house. They've been great and and they treat us well. But when I worked for Heartland Homes in Pittsburgh, which we did 450 truly custom homes, everyone got redrawn, stick framed on site by by Amish framers. But the only way to get at at a scale of 450 homes in a market like Pittsburgh was to put those same things. And it seemed counterintuitive to anyone else we talked to around the country of how are you doing that much personalization and customization for that many homes. And it was because the designs were all completed up front. And so it, it can be done. And, and honestly, that's that's the one major drawback of my experience building my own custom home is having been in the business as we were making preliminary plans and discussions and the builder kept saying, we'll figure that out when we get to that point. Every warning signal in my brain was like, <laughs> I do not want to do this. Uh, not just because it was a pandemic and the ability to pivot is almost non-existent, just because I know how much better everything will go when, when it's planned in advance. I mean, stress, cost, lead time situations. I mean, there's so many things solved in advance. I love these restaurants as an analogy. And think about it. If you have 100 orders come in and 90 of them get changed later, or we'll figure out if they want to side later, yeah. it's not going to be executable. How are we doing custom homes as we'll build it as we go? That may have worked in the 50s. It may have even worked when there was limited selections in the 90s, but now with truly almost custom selections in every category. Yeah. Uh, and then currently in the pandemic, I mean, this is what it's going to be. And if a builder is listening that wants to do this or is thinking about changing their philosophy, what you find out is the customers actually, and you alluded to as a homeowner, they love it. My wife has massive anxiety before she orders food at a restaurant. Yes. The second it goes to the kitchen, we never talk about the menu again. They just want to get it picked out. I just ordered a, a, a Tahoe. And you literally sit on a computer, even worse than home building, and check off every little <laughs> nut and bolt that you want, and you wait four months. Kind of stressful, 
Mm-hmm. But the second you order it, uh, in fact, my wife and I just talked about what color it's coming in in March. We don't remember. It's over. <laughs> so getting that process through, and, and if you do that, there'll be less 2 a.m. emails from a nervous yeah. homeowner saying, hey, I walked through that pantry door. Can we just get like two inches more? Because I think, I think it's a little small. Offsite construction, they know it's being built in a factory. They walk through it. It goes up very quickly. And they're like, oh, I love the pantry door. Those thoughts don't go through their mind. Hey, those windows yeah. seem too low. The windows are in the walls. It's over. They don't right. have that stress. Right. Guilt, yeah. remorse, buyer's remorse, right? All that Honey, if you ever stuff. listen to this, he is talking to you. So that, that was the, the beauty of the process we went through was we could make changes anytime. There was no fees or, oh. or rules about change orders. <laughs> and, and she loved it. And at the same time, every time she would say to herself, well, but I could, so, so she never shut that part of her brain off. Every, every decision she made still was basically open for, for rediscovery and, and bringing back all the stress related to that decision. So I just think whether you're going to do offsite or not, that is how 98% of all custom homes should be built. And the remaining 2% are, you know, the, the margins on those jobs are so high because you're, you are dedicating a project manager to three jobs because you're going to hold that customer's hand the entire time. And, and slash gonna... interior designers, slash many mm-hmm. people involved with very large diamond rings on their fingers because of the markets. <laughs> I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And we that thus help solve a builder's problem because we're saying, if you want to do this, we'll come in and clean you up. Like because we can't accept a half order. Right. Which we deal with a lot. That's probably, we talk about mistakes. When we make major mistakes, yeah, get us in the queue. Get us in the building log for April. We'll decide on this stuff later. That is the, when we do that and we try not to do that, when that happens, that's when Joel, the president of the company, tends to have to get involved later down the process. Yeah. It's it's just very, very interesting how, how complicated we make the business and we keep blaming materials and all these other things, but it comes back to the decisions of, of ownership of saying... I'm willing to accept this amount of chaos in, in, in my business. And that um, the, the customer's not willing to go on that ride with you, uh, if not once, multiple times. You know, So at this yeah, point, I, I would say yeah. I, w- I would build another house next week. I love everything about building. <laughs> love my it. wife's opinion at this moment would be, this is the third house we've built, never again. Uh, but but it's because of, of how much uh, stress and anxiety went, went through so the process. There's something I got to tell you. Psychologically, I read this and I truly believe in it. The builders listening and, and us as a supplier, if you think about it, uh, there's two ice cream shops, one on the left side of the road and one on the right side of the road and you're on vacation. And one has a hundred flavors. Yes, your brain is, and the one has three. Yeah, paradox of choice. Yes, and, and the, your brain, yeah, thank you. You're smarter than me. And the left side says... And for everyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, the left side says, go to the 100 flavors, run there. But you get there and you're overwhelmed, you have buyer's remorse, you have too many selections, it's a horrible thing. But yet, think of the inventory level for that, for that guy. Mm-hmm. Think of the, the waste for that person. Think of the training for, right? All same in the building. Think of the training of the staff, yeah. the size of the place. The other guy says, I have three amazing flavors. I taste, test ice cream every day. These are the three, like, they're yeah. just the most phenomenal ice cream well, in the curation. world. Well, curation. I mean, it's just like, yeah. so, so we try to make the illusion of a hundred choices when you walk into our right. showrooms. Right. And then we select three that's going to make your wife really happy. <laughs> I was talking, I don't remember who this was. I was talking to a sales manager who came up through the ranks and he said, one of my favorite approaches to design someone's house is that 
because uh, this is a person who would sell the home and then have to go through the design process. And he would say to the to the couple in front of him, he would say, "Hey, we're going to play a little game here. I'm going to write down this sheet of paper. I'm going to I'm going to predict your selections because I feel like I've really gotten to know you guys really well." <laughs> and then he'd write down countertop, cabinet, whatever, and then they'd go through the process. And then he turned it over, and he would be like nine out of ten a bullseye. And people would, that's amazing. You really do know us. And he's like, actually, I just know what everyone wants right now. And that's just the trend. It's the best. They come in with their Pinterest and their box of goodies. And they're like, we want this really cool, amazing custom home. And they show you the same pictures the last nine clients did, right? You're like, oh yeah. Yeah. So that, we can, we could probably do something in gray. Shiplap here. That gray. That in white, (laughs) that in gray. Yes, exactly. Is is Shiplap still going on? Is that, is that over? Yes, it's still, it's still happening. Another podcast would definitely be a great idea would be a, just hit on that topic. I believe trends have stopped because of the pandemic. You're not mm. seeing new trends come out. It's an interesting topic, but not for today. Yeah. Well, trends are a luxury that we don't have. I mean, uh, it's only, it only can become a trend if enough people can get it to cause the the rest of the masses to say, yes, sign me up too. And right now I think, uh, you know, whether, whatever it is, just waiting five months to join the trend is it is exciting, uh, to, to, to our, to our animal <laughs> brains. I don't think. Uh, so a quick story on, on the paradox of choice, uh, just for fun. And then a final follow-up to you. Um, I, I worked, my first job was at Tim Hortons running the drive-through. And at the time, oh, that's great job. Great first job. Oh, it was like top gun. I would play the, because it was just like, we're just getting these planes to take off, you know, I yeah, analogies anyway. uh, but, but we had 40 flavors of donuts. Uh, Wendy's had just purchased, uh, Tim Hortons. And so Columbus was one of the first places in in the States where you could, you could get a Tim Hortons donut and coffee and people would always come through the drive-through, which this cracked me up. And it was a good lesson in marketing come through the drive-through and they'd say, um, yes, what do you have here? What do you serve here? Cause they'd never, they had no idea what to expect. And I would say, well, we, we have donuts and coffee and muffins donuts. Oh, we love donuts. What kind of donuts do you have? And at that point as a teenager, I was just annoyed and I wanted to prove to them that what they did made no sense going into the drive-through like you're mucking up my whole system here. The yeah, clock's yeah. on. You need to get your butt inside the store. If you've never been here to understand what it is. I have and your so, order ready. Just I have your order ready at this point. Now I have your order ready. Please pull up. <laughs> yeah. So I would just start naming off all 40. I had memorized them and I would just start saying them as fast as possible to, to give them the sense of what, and, and by the time I got to like number 12, they're like, we'll come inside. And I would say, yes, yes, you should. But, but to your point, just from the waste, the amount of, of, of material that was tossed out every time that happened about half the store would rush up and say, isn't there a homeless shelter or someone you can donate this to? Because just with 40 varieties, it's not hitting in every market. And, and that waste is going to be passed on to some, some someone in terms of cost. Um, in terms of curation and what you guys do, um, is there any sense, my, my analogy here would be a, a print company and a marketer designing a postcard or some type of piece and you send it to them. Uh, my favorite printer ever that I worked with would catch grammar mistakes, which was not part of their scope of work, but they'd be like, hey, did you realize that you misspelled grammar on line two? No, I didn't. Oh, would you like us to change it for you? Absolutely. So, value, so I imagine- Value, 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 right? There you go. Absolutely. I did not care how much, you know, the- print piece charge was because he just saved my butt multiple times over by providing that service. As you guys are scaling up or a company like yours are scaling up and providing more of this, I imagine as, as a builder comes to you with what they think is a revolutionary concept or idea, you've seen it entirely or seen parts of it. And back to that pantry, you know, door being too narrow. 
Are there things like that that your team is starting to, to realize that you can proactively just tell a builder, hey, you might have just missed this misspelling uh, error, and we would we would suggest this doing this differently? Or is it still just kind of a, you take it in as it comes and and however it's specified, it's built? Yeah, quick back on the curation, right? I actually think part of our lead time issues is that every national manufacturer, without them knowing it, had to launch new colors every year, had to launch new lines every yep. year. And we were greedy and we were fat and we were lazy. And Sherwin-Williams woke up and said, we have, I'm exaggerating, 73 paint lines with 8,000 colors. These are now permanently on back order because they don't yeah. want to have bad news. <laughs> Teratone windows in Anderson are out six months. That I know for a fact. Yeah. Yeah. They don't sell Teratone anymore. I mean, think guys, think what they're actually telling us. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, absolutely. Pocket door frames are, are a pretty big deal in, in Wisconsin. It's a pre-built pocket door frame. Their door slides back and forth. Yes. Uh, it, we make we make one custom, but it requires a two by six wall, not a two by four wall. So when it all works, when offsite construction will work, and we look at this in 2028, 2027, and why we need a full builder commitment, boom, we can b- make all your walls that have a pocket door frame two by six. I can't do that yep. in the field. I can't do that later. If you think about there's in our world, we have these little flare roofs. I call them flare roofs. I don't mm-hmm. know the correct term. You know, they're kind of popular now. It gives it that old world look. Yeah, it's the only can, part we should keep from the Tudor or whatever yeah, architectural you. style that is. But yes, everything I, else can I go away. Just... <laughs> yeah, I, that's really well said. Maybe that loft upstairs with that little cute window. Um, uh, I like to. But yeah, so we can pre-build the flares. Like, think of that, right? You got a guy on site. How am I going to build this? Oh, yeah, we did that two years ago. I can just pre-build them on, take three Titan screws, assemble it. But getting with that designer and say, please make that flare this way. Uh, to the design community. Now that's going to take time, but that's why it needs to be vertically integrated and a full builder commitment because then every plan, we can just start getting better in very little ways. And again, it's not modular. We're not going to start bringing your whole home out in the next decade, but can we start building some of that pre-made? That answers, of course, yes. And that again, drives costs down, down, down. I can pre-make 30 of them with a, a girl or a guy that's working second shift and that's what he or she makes. And yeah. they love their job in a controlled setting. I um, I love it whenever a podcast goes full circle. So pre-show, we were talking about my experience at Miranda, oh, like being a good, like being a good comedian. Yeah, go right. But you know, Miranda, one of the one of the features, and and they didn't build very many you know higher end um, homes, but the ones that they did had these amazing curved staircases. Now they were amazing because you could pay two hundred and eighty thousand dollars for a thirty six hundred square foot house with curved wooden staircases that's with a cool. single rail. Yeah, that's cool. But but. If you were going to get that look off, you know, a referral from an architect, the cost of that stairs would have been astronomical. And they just had, you know, two or three guys in a plant in Eaton, Ohio, who just made those over and over and over and over with the jigs. And it was so exactly what you're talking about. And I also final rant here. I think Pinterest and Hal's are 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 two of the most evil things for customers <laughs> in the sense that you never get a full picture of what you know you're saying I love the way this wall looks in the kitchen but that's irrelevant because you always have to understand how is that wall connected to every other wall and the space itself and the roof line and everything else and it doesn't give that context and so I think that's again the value that companies like yours can provide is to say that I understand the look you're trying to achieve but here's the things you don't know about that picture. Uh, the, the silliest example would be we did a show on HGTV where a designer could do whatever they wanted to. Also probably a bad idea, but they spec'd out in a home to put uh, real marble flooring 
in a, in a sunroom and kitchen. Well, surprise, surprise, that weighs a ton. Yeah. And so what, what no one's ever going to show you when you look at that picture on houses, the extra 10 grand in, in engineering that had to go into the floor system after the home had already been, been framed just to support that floor. And the pool table that was below there is not ripped <laughs> up because there's a post every two feet. But, exactly. you know, having said that, we also, I think it's very important to say, you know, we didn't talk anything about the design of the home. I, again, and it, well, for us at Drexel, on January 1st, we just launched our true 3D design services with a true virtual designer on staff uh, using Revit. And I think we watch, uh, everyone has now grown up watching HGTV. Mm-hmm. It's not new to them. They walk into a builder or a supply company that does residential design and says, I'm ready for my HDTV experiments, experience. <laughs> and they go, what? Two-line drawings? No, yeah. it's got like a 3D perspective. No, that's a two-line drawing. So, but we have to get there. We have to get there because they have to be able to visualize it. That's part of that. Yes. Make all your selections because you can now visualize it. So it's all part of the integration process. Sorry, Kevin, I get worked Well, up. no, I, I think you're 100% right. I would just say the 3D part is, is where we need to get to. But the first part is 2D drawings that don't take two weeks to get back to you. That was the epiphany that my wife had because originally she wanted to sit down with the architect, with the builder at a table. And then we had two of those conversations and then there'd be a week or two. And then you get, and, and then we just had a zoom call for 20 minutes with cat on the screen. And she was like, Hey, can you just move that wall? And it just happened instantly. And she was like, I never need to, to do anything but this again. Like, I, I just want to, I want the instant gratification of watching someone move things around and then to be able to visualize it is, is the obvious next step the builders need to get but we're, to. But, we're, but the building community is scared to death of doing that because they're saying, well, if I, if I show them Pandora's box, right? if I open that little box, I'm going to be with her every single night forever. And that's actually not true. They just yeah. want to actually do it. And I, I actually think you can wait. I think current mindset is you can wait two or three weeks for that preliminary drawing. I think people are okay with like, I get it. You got to create this magnificent house for me. But the changes the changes can't go back in the queue for two or three weeks. Yeah, yeah, the changes exactly. have to be in a timely manner to get it to the finish line. People's brains are just all over the place. They're thinking about a million things. And if they don't hear it back from you in a week or two, on a, on a, what they know is a, a small change, they get that. Yep. Um, I think that's when they, the frustrations start. And sometimes you never get over it through the whole building process. Wow. Well, Joel, thanks so much for, for spending the time with me. Say a special thank you to the whole Drexel team for giving uh, the the president of the organization to us for an hour. Appreciate that, and uh, be sure to say hi to the Tim O'Brien folks next time you see them uh, as well. Great, great builder in Wisconsin. If you're not aware, check out their website. Uh, they also have a podcast. Tim's real big on building science, uh, so go check that out too. Yeah, fantastic, and thank you for having me on. Continue to do great things in our building industry. We really appreciate everything you do on behalf of Drexel. All right, thanks, Joel. Thank you. Peace.